0: exciting. Thank y'all. Well, it is awesome to be with y'all tonight. Um, we will be in the book of Amos, chapter 2. And if you're in the church's Bible, on page 1056. And after, after seven full and difficult judgments, we are to, you could say, the final of the Lord's judgments but really this is just the beginning of a long long judgment that the lord has against israel so um bill if you don't mind to to put up our our starting map so we have here the the last seven judgments that we have Studied of cruelty and exploitation, betrayal, enmity, murder, contempt for Moab, for the king of Edom, and Judah's contempt for the Lord's law and for the Lord's ways. Tonight for Israel, the spiritual place is selfishness, selfishness. So we see now that Israel is center stage for all of the judgments that the Lord has brought. And each of these judgments have their place for Israel. And I know we've said this several times now, but you can can imagine those in Israel hearing this prophecy and hearing this judgment... Those that hadn't left Amos already, thinking, this has nothing for me, but those who would listen to the judgments against their enemies, grow closer to home, thinking, this has nothing to do with me. But as we've studied, all of these have places that are at root in Israel. They hear about Judah, who is their brother, and who they knew... (laughs) was far closer to the Lord's ways than them. So tonight we come to Israel. Um, Bill, if you'd go to the next slide for us to, to uh, remember a little bit about how Israel was separated as a nation after Solomon split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Israel goes first into captivity and Judah second. And we talked about Judah last week because they are mentioned before Israel. But chronologically, Judah would have another 135 years before the Lord would completely deliver them over to their destruction in Babylon. But Israel would go into captivity far sooner. Of the 19 kings that Israel had, not one of them were said to be good. In fact, in Kings and Chronicles, it is said that all of them followed in the ways of Jeroboam I, who was the first king of the ten-tribe nation of Israel. All of them followed in his evil ways. Not one of them would turn, although God sent five different prophets to Israel. He sent Elijah and Elisha, a prophet named uh, Micaiah, prophet named Jehu, and finally Amos. And Amos was actually in about 750-something B.C., so Amos was a good 30 years before they would go into captivity. So amidst all of this, they still would refuse to hear God's word. And they would go into captivity to Assyria for the salvation of their soul. So that's where we'll be tonight. So... um, As we, as we said, um, and, and you can leave that on, that's fine, um, Israel would be split into two nations. The first king of Judah was named Rehoboam, and he was Solomon's son. And the first king of Israel was named Jeroboam I. And Jeroboam would actually have to um, establish a new sites for worship. Um, Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom of Judah, and so Jeroboam I would have to establish new sites and actually in Samaria, and, and Bethel, and in and Dan. So places that he wanted to not just rival, but be completely separate from Jerusalem. For Jerusalem was worshiping Yahweh, God's presence was there in the Ark of the Covenant, So he would establish these other sites that would eventually not even have Yahweh's worship in any way, but Baal and Asherah and others that would be in places that were said to be for Israel's worship of God. So he did not want his people being influenced by Judah and by the worship in Jerusalem. Amos is leading up to this place of Israel like a crescendo. And we read his words in English and they they seem powerful and maybe poetic, but in Hebrew they would have been lyrical. They would have been leading up to this pinnacle judgment against Israel. And I was thinking this week that that as he gets there, he He's kind of like Nathan, the prophet Nathan that you remember in Second Samuel, that he tells this parable to David, and then David comes in agreement with what Nathan is saying, and Nathan says, you are that man. As they would hear these words, they'd probably be cheering internally for the sins of these people against them and against God, and then Amos basically, you are that man, them. So if you turn and we look, in, we look in Amos chapter 2, if you have subheadings in your Bible, they probably begin for the judgment on Judah, which is just a few verses, like all of the passages we've read before. And then it shows the, the judgment on Israel, which is from verse 6 to verse 16. So a much larger, much larger judgment than the others. Amos gives ten whole verses, which are really just the prologue, the opening statements like a prosecution attorney in the courtroom that is really just laying out the very basic details that he will unravel and unfold. There are three sections that we'll read about here in this this one passage. The first is the sins of Israel. The second is a reminder of God's goodness, and the third is God's judgment. So let's read together verses 6 through 16. Amos says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, And he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. It is not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophet, saying, Do not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart is full of sheaves, as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself, he shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. So there is a lot that Amos is saying here. And like I said, this is really uh, the the language that Amos begins to use, starting here with Israel, is legal language. If we could see the the Hebrew, we could see that, that he is he's not even the attorney. He is the person announcing the one who is the attorney bringing judgment. He is the one who is the bailiff taking away the defendant. And he is the judge who is ruling and presiding. But he is going to offer these opening statements to set the stage for what is to come. So this first section is just a few verses in six and seven and in eight. And these are the sins that Amos says God has against Israel. Amos follows suit for his previous words. He says, for three transgressions of Israel and four. To hear this now eight times must almost just be like nails on a chalkboard to those in Israel. Hearing this Again and again and again and now knowing that it is turned to them and that the fullness of all of the sins of those have been mentioned have now come upon them. And their sins are greater than those of the world. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. So there are eight indictments of sin that Amos brings against them. Eight, which is part of Amos's charm using these literary devices because now Israel is the eighth nation to have a judgment against them and he lists eight judgments to say you represent the fullness of the fullness of the fullness of sin and evil and rebellion against God. So we're going to look at each of these, these eight, and I believe that a message could be given on each one of these eight, but we won't do that tonight. As I was studying these, I, I had a, a, a scripture in Deuteronomy for nearly every one of these because for each of these indictments that Amos has, there is a scripture that God had, had warned him in his law to say, don't do these things. So instead of reading all of these eight, I want to read one large body that encompasses all of these. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. If you're in the church's Bible, it will be on page 214. Deuteronomy chapter 10. It's amazing because in in just 10 verses that we'll read, it really sets forth the, the precedent, if you will, to use a legal term, against all of the sins and crimes that Amos will hold Israel accountable for. And all of these sins are addressed multiple other times just within the book of Deuteronomy. We'll begin reading in verse 12 and we'll read through verse 22. Amos says in verse 12, my, my, my subheading in my Bible actually says the essence of the law. It says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep his commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. He chose them, their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, and the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the stranger, giving, food, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to his name you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God. He who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. So let's turn back to to Amos chapter 2. The first thing that, that Amos shares is he's going to talk about those who would punish the poor, excuse me, those who would sell the poor. The first first two are in, in in verse 6 it says because they sell the righteous for silver Israel bribed its judges to decide in their favor against a person who had a righteous case oh the irony again Israel bribed its judges to decide in their favor against a person who had a righteous case whose case would have won on its own merits If you're looking for a scripture against that God talks in Deuteronomy 16 about paying a judge about bribing a judge about being involved in lawsuits period in Deuteronomy 16 19 it says you shall not pervert justice you shall not show partiality nor take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous the next place that Amos says it says it says Because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. So not only are they bribing judges to overturn their verdicts, they are now selling the poor for a pair of sandals. Sandals were nothing like the shoes that the rich wore. Back then, sandals had soles of wood or bark, and they were fastened to the foot for leather straps. So they were basic and poor footwear. They were not something that a rich person would wear. They're not like what we wear that are fashionable and cool and comfortable. They were the lowest of the low for footwear for anyone. So the Israelites took no care whatsoever of the poor. They would first bribe a judge to rule in their favor if a person owed them as little as what a sandal would cost. That's what Amos is saying. Poverty did not cause these to sink to this desperation. Right, They weren't suing over the cost of a pair of sandals because they themselves were impoverished. They sued because they were greedy and disrespectful for other people. These were their brothers. These were their countrymen and women. They did not want to take care of the widow, the orphan, or the foreigner in their land, those who represented the poor as God instructed them in Deuteronomy. It's so important that we understand what poor means, because when we hear of poor, we might have all kinds of ideas what that means. But to God, the poor is much greater than just someone without means. The poor is the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Anyone who has what we doesn't have what we do have. In Deuteronomy 24, I'll just read this, but in Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, it says, when you reap the harvest in your field... And forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, right? So if we are working in our day and we lose some money perhaps on the ground, we should not go back for it. We should leave it for the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow, the poor. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat down the olive trees, when you... You shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. To have been a slave is to have been poor and without. And the Lord says, because I said so, but because of what I've done for you, You shall do for others. We live as believers out of the abundance of God's character and His grace and mercy and love for us. And if we are not, we are oppressing the poor. Worse than this, the next thing Amos says. Beginning in verse 7, it says, They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor. And this is such a bizarre statement that Amos uses. It's almost sarcastic that the rich in Israel want even the dust on the brow of the poor. They are filled with such greed and such enmity and such desire and such lust that they have to have even the sand and the dust and the filth of the earth that the poor are surrounded with. God commanded his people to show love and justice to all who live in the land, not just the wealthy, but the poor too. There is church culture today that are, that are, that are in the trenches for what they might call social justice, right? Right? And we might hear words like this and say, yes, bring justice for social disparity in the world. Or we might hear and go, oh, just another crusade to give to those who don't deserve. Neither of which thought is the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father is to show love and justice to all who live in the land, not just the wealthy but the poor too. Next, Amos says... That they pervert the way of the humble. They influence the humble to stray from God's laws and statutes regarding taking care of the poor. The humble here would be those who would care for the poor who may not have means themselves. So we've got the wealthy and the rich that Amos is prophesying against and we have the poor over here who are being trampled upon and we might have those in the middle who have no such means but care for the poor anyway. And Amos says these rich are looking to deceive and draw away these humble from caring for God's people and keeping his laws and his ways. They were no better than the kings and the pagan nations around them who followed their own desires. The people of Israel abused the poor and corrupted the judicial system of their nation. They broke God's laws set up to let them live in peace and contentment. The people of Israel influenced people to stray from God's laws and statutes and lead them to mistreat the poor. As we hear these things, I mean, this sounds far greater than the things that we have read about these other nations that don't know better, right? They have nothing for their model, we could say, but other nations who do such poor things. But God's people were called to be a city on a hill. They were called to be a light unto the world, to welcome the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the stranger into God's fold that they might come to know God and others might come to know God. And these have refused God's ways. Next, Amos says, "A man and his father go into the same girl. Oh. Fathers and sons resorted to going to the same girl. There is much speculation on what this means exactly." Some believe that this was a slave or servant girl that was in a household and that a father and son both took advantage of her sexually and abused her. But I believe more than that that this represents the prostitutes of Baal and Asherah that were in these temples that would have been in Bethel and Dan and Samaria. See, the kings of Israel had brought in and adopted these ways. Kings like Ahab and Jezebel, his queen wife, would bring in prostitutes and to fornicate with them was to worship these false gods. It shows an even greater perversion than taking sexual advantage of their servant, but to go into temple worship, to profane places that were raised up to be in God's name, that a father would teach his son this way of great sexual sin. The next one that Amos says is to defile my holy name. And this is, of course, the result of all of these sins, but namely the sexual sin where God's name was being profaned because these great acts were being committed in places that were set up to worship God. The next place that Amos says is, says they lie down by every altar on clothes, Taken in pledge. I'll read just this. Well, no, let's just turn there together. Turn with me. This is too important not to see. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 24. And the church's Bible will be on page 229, Deuteronomy 24. We'll read verses 10 through 13. It reads, When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him when the sun goes down, that he may sleep on his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. So a pledge is talking about a place of a loan. If a loan needed to be exchanged, that there would be something as capital that would be held. So for a person to pledge his or her cloak meant that for their loan, they had nothing else of value to offer as a guarantee or repayment. So taking a person's cloak was more than just taking their coat because people this poor, it meant this was their jacket, their blanket, their pallet, their mattress, their pillow, where they received their rest. It even says that you're to turn it in to them before sundown so they may have it each day. This is completely opposite of the way we do business we hold people accountable to our laws and our ways and our judgments for how we should be treated. God did not want for his people and the foreigners who lived in Israel this kind of unnecessary hardship and burden. Besides this, it says that they were using their cloak to lay down beside every altar. These are not the Lord's altars. These are pagan altars. So they took these places of pledge that they were supposed to return and they used them. They used them against God as they worshipped false gods. They defiled that person's cloak and that person's opportunity for worship to show disregard for it and the person and the Lord. Let's go back to Amos the last sin that Amos shares against Israel is drinking illegal wine. It says in verse 8, as we just read, they lay down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink wine of the condemned in the house of their God. So they drink wine from the condemned, they they steal their wine, they plunder it, it is ill-gotten gains, and they use it to celebrate and feast to false gods and false god-worship houses like Bethel and Dan and Samaria. They take the things God has given to man like grapes to make wine because water was not potable like Deborah's taught us, and they took these things from the poor and they went into false worship houses to worship with them. So this is a lot, right? In a nutshell, Israel oppressed and abused the poor. They corrupted the justice system with bribery and intentional misjudgment, and they used their plunder to worship false gods. I I think Amos could have gone on and on, and there's not enough books to describe all the places of worship that were going on in Israel, but to show the gross rebellion and mistreatment of God and of God's people. More in a nutshell, the Lord said to me that the Israelites were selfish. Now the word selfish doesn't really seem strong enough to fit here, does it? We've got words like exploitation and murder and contempt. And this word, selfish that doesn't seem enough to put into context corruption and greed and abuse and oppression, backstabbing, jealousy, discontentment, disrespect for people and for God and willful stubborn rejection of Yahweh. But this is who they are. This is is who people who have been unchanged and refuse to be changed are. They're selfish. The simplest understanding of selfishness is to be lacking in consideration for others. Concerned chiefly with one's own personal profit and pleasure. To be selfish is to do what one wants without regard for anyone or anything. And this is the spiritual condition of God's people. Selfishness drove God to bring his wrath and judgment against his people. Individually and nationally, their selfishness had reached the extreme. It had reached the limits of God's holiness. So there's a little more here we'll look at in Amos chapter 2. The next section is, section is verses 9 through 12. And we'll go through this pretty, pretty quickly. God reminds the Israelites of what he had done for them and who he made them to be. So the first thing it says is that in verse 9 it says, yet it is I. Now maybe I should pause here for a second. This is the first of the judgments that Amos gives where after the judgment, Amos reminds the judgee of who their God is. So Amos pauses from all of this great sin to say, have you forgotten me? I am the God who delivered you into Canaan. He says, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Now the Amorite is a people that that really encompasses who, who lived in Canaan when Israel came in there. In Genesis, we could read in chapter 10, where it says that the Amorite lived in Canaan when God is talking to Abraham. So God drove out the Amorite. He drove out those from the land. The Amorites were those, that Amos says here, whose height was like the height of cedars. These people had great ego and great pride and thought that none could overtake them. And in this great land in Canaan, God drove them out before Israel. Yet I destroyed his, excuse me, and he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of of the Amorite we know all this right this is, this is one of many pictures of God's salvation that God sees the Israelite when they are the poor when they are the oppressed when they are in slavery and he drives out the Amorite from the land and he gives them the land of the Amorite to possess it, it says this in so many ways to possess the land of the Amorite it's not their land it is what God gave them They didn't deserve it. He reminds them that this is who he is. He added to it that the provided leaders and messengers that God sent to guide them and help them to understand his will, he raised up prophets and spokespeople. It says in 11, I raised up some of your sons as prophets. They weren't holy people. They were people who God made holy. And when they acted unholy, God sent prophets and spokespeople among them to give God's word and guidance and direction. Goes on to say, and some of your young men as Nazarites. And we know that Nazarites were those who who didn't shave their head and they didn't drink wine so as to not be corrupted by the things of the world. And it was a picture that they were like Levites, a special people that were set apart, and they were known as those who followed God, so they were sought after for direction. But the Israelites wouldn't have it. They corrupted them to drink wine and to shave their heads and to conform to their ways because they really didn't want the ways of God in Israel. The Lord provided everything they needed, including their leaders. He gave them food and drink and manna and cloud and pillar. And God provided his promise to their own land, their inheritance. He made them a nation to themselves to call him his children. And what did they do in spite of these reminders? They said, get out. It says after that, it says, but you gave to the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. In addition to the sins and the ways that Israel had, they didn't want the Lord's word. And this sounds so simple to read these verses and think we're unlike them. To this, Amos has the Lord's judgment, the Lord's verdict. Amos says in verse 13, Behold, I am weighed down by you, as a cart of sheaves is weighed down. This is such an interesting image, because sheaves are wheat or barley or grain, and so I'm imagining even just a a wheelbarrow like we have, right? That is meant to hold things. And so to have a, a wheelbarrow or a cart that is weighed down ultimately by feathers, right? Wheat does not weigh a lot. So I'm imagining this great, great pile of hardy, full wheat. Not bad wheat that's thin and porous and flaking off, but thick, hardy, healthy wheat that is so heavy and great that it is a burden on the wheels of this cart. This is how God feels about our sin. He is burdened by our sin. Some go off on a tangent on this burden by our sin and, and they make it a burden as if he is, he is mourning and he's sad and he's... Oh. And I believe there's a tinge of that but it is God's justice and his holiness that is weighed down by the sin of his people like a parent, their child who refuses their way. God's heart was heavy Because of the Israelites' sin against him, their rebellion, their disregard, their disrespect, and how they discarded him as Lord. So as a result, God says three different ways in verses 14 and 15 that even the strongest warriors, none will escape. The swift of foot, those who run quickly, would not find a place to escape God's judgment. God's judgment would occur and it would happen swiftly when they were not expecting it. Amos describes the fastest runner, the fastest runner who could ever run, and he says that one cannot escape my judgment, but instead my judgment will come upon him as fast as he thinks he is. Neither the stalwart, the strong, the mighty, nor the bravest man would defeat God's plan for judgment with the coming army. God is too powerful for man to defeat. Last, it says the archer. The one who would be far off, who would be like a sniper, so to speak, who would be undercover and well-protected and not visible to their adversary. That archer would not remain standing against the Lord. The Lord would prevail. He would not be saved. As Amos is saying this, I can almost hear the sarcasm in his voice. And it's, it's, it's not funny, but it's almost funny that the way Amos is describing how we think we can outrun God's holiness. That we think that deep down in the places that we, we hold dear and we don't share and we try and press down and hope it's not true of us. The places that the Lord is revealing, Amos says God knows. And we cannot press them down far enough or guard them close enough, or try in our own means long enough for which God's wrath will not uncover and say enough. The Israelites had rebelled for so long against God and his laws and his statutes, God would have to do something dramatic and powerful for them to see and hear and obey And we know that the Israelites didn't turn their attention to the Lord. About 30 years after this, God would bring their demise. Did they ever recognize their sinfulness or were they too hardened? It amazes me that back in Deuteronomy, God tells them to not be stiff-necked, to not do these things. And Moses sends warning after warning amongst the law. God sends prophet after prophet. God sends famine after famine and war after war and enemy after enemy. And all the exploits that we've been studying about were places to get their attention. We know the rest of the story. So... This is Israel. And the Lord told me that this spirit is selfishness. It's not just a place of selfishness. It's not just a people who are selfish. It is a spirit. So when Paul says these were given for our examples, I see that clearer and clearer. They were given for our examples, not just that we wouldn't be like them, right? That's what I've heard my entire life. Don't repeat their mistakes, We have to be delivered from the evil spirits. Jesus came around casting out unclean spirits and demons and places of immorality among those who were in the crowd, who listened to him teach, who were of Israel and of Judah and like Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews. And Jesus knew that for their lives to change, they had to be delivered. And so it is with Israel and so it is with us. As I read back through these verses in 6 through 8, and I think, how could such a people do this? Selfishness. Not like we have boiled it down to where it seems okay, well I know I'm a little selfish, or they're a lot of selfish. Or if that person wasn't so selfish. These people only did what they wanted to do. They only did what brought them pleasure. They only cared for who brought them satisfaction. They only loved the God who scratched their ears. Mm. So last night, um, Rebecca and I had gotten into a discussion And I I say discussion because I don't know that it was a fight. But it was definitely not a place that either of us wanted to be. And uh, the discussion put me in a stalemate. Because I knew that there was no use talking anymore. There was no use trying to hash out of it and try and figure out what one thought about the other. I knew the situation couldn't be worked out in discussion but it had to be worked out in me. And boy, I I sat in the room and with Rebecca and I'm 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 clenching my fist because I'm thinking I know this is me. And I know that I'm wrong. My mind tells me that I'm right, that I have a place to be justified for even the craziness that I'm thinking that is really so small. And I said, Lord, show me where I'm at. And the Lord said, you're selfish. You're thinking about you. Oh, man. Here's what the Lord showed me. Selfishness keeps us from fully keeping the Lord's commandments. I believe that there are a lot of people in full salvation, life-saving grace filled with God's Holy Spirit who have a spirit of selfishness. And selfishness robs from God and neighbor it robs from robs god from his high and only place in our lives and it robs from neighbor because we don't see others according to his love this is israel they have robbed god of his high place and they have destroyed their neighbor because they don't know how to love like god loves Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we cannot pursue God's great commandments with a heart filled with selfishness. And whether it is a fragment or a plank, a heart with selfishness is a heart against God's ways. I pray that we would heed God's word for Israel and his desire for his followers. Amen.